Support for this episode of NRAY was provided by the Nanny Tax Company. If you employ a nanny, babysitter, caregiver, or housekeeper in your home, you may be required to pay employment taxes. The Nanny Tax Company has expertise in handling the delicate tax requirements for household employers. The service is simple, accurate, and cost-effective so you can save time while staying compliant with the law. For more information, visit www.nannytaxprep.com or call 1-800-747-9820. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not represent IICLE. This episode of Vinray contains content that may be seen as objectionable to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Enray, the podcast about all things law, big and small. I'm your host, Christopher Noel. Nineteen fifty-nine, Northern Illinois. A man and woman walk together down a secluded park path. The sound of their footsteps, nature, and their voices is interrupted by a stranger. He has a rifle. The stranger ties up the man with twine and rapes the woman. He has a rifle rounded in his mouth the entire time as a reminder of what could happen if they got out of line. The stranger finishes his assault, robs them, and takes off into the night. She reports the rape and robbery, but her words fall onto deaf ears. She won't be heard until the following year, when she bursts into tears after seeing a picture and yelling, That's him. Francis Murphy, 47, Mildred Lindquist, 50, and Lillian Edding, 50, decided to take a midweek vacation to Starved Rock State Park. In 2020, it's a park visited by thousands each year. But in 1960, it was still relatively vacant most of the year. The snowy, cold weather did not deter the three women from staying at the state park for four days. A friend wanted to go with the women, but was unable to due to her son visiting. So, the three women ventured to the state park together. Lillian Edding told her husband George, who had recently had heart problems, that she would call that evening to check in on him. She met up with Francis and Mildred, and the women left their homes in Riverside to drive two hours away to Starved Rock State Park. They checked in with the desk clerk and were given the adjoining rooms of 109 and 110. They placed their bags in their rooms and went down for lunch in the dining room. After that, the women went on a hike to St. Louis Canyon, which is about one and a half miles from the lodge. George Edding waited for Lillian to call that night, but the phone didn't ring. He called the lodge, but only got the switchboard. The next day, he called again in the morning, but once again, there was no answer. A postcard from their friend arrived for them, detailing how regretful she was she couldn't be with them on their getaway. On Wednesday, after a huge snowstorm, George became frustrated at the lack of help from the Starved Rock Lodge and called Francis Murphy's husband, Robert Murphy, to assist in calling the lodge. Robert Murphy called, but once again received no help. Robert Murphy then called Robert Lindquist to see if he had heard from Lillian. Robert Lindquist had also not heard from his wife. The calls for the women spurred police into action. 
Upon investigation, they found that the women's rooms were untouched except for their luggage. A member of housekeeping later recalled that one of the rooms looked as if someone had cleaned up in the bathtub as there was a ring around it, but the bed was untouched. A massive hunt for the women began. Individuals from the community trudged through the snow looking for the women. Boys from a state correctional camp nearby joined in the search for the women. They would eventually find the women in St. Louis Canyon. Down the ice-covered rock walls cascaded a waterfall frozen in time. At the base of the canyon was where the three women met their end. Investigators descended on the grisly scene. They found Lillian, Francis, and Mildred dead. Their skirts had been pulled up to their necks, and they were nude from the waist down. They also appeared to have been hit over the head multiple times. An autopsy would later confirm that each woman had injuries consistent with having over 100 blows to the head, which was their cause of death. Francis Murphy and Lillian Edding were found to have been tied up with the twine, and all three women were placed in an alcove. The time of death was figured to be around 3 p.m., the day they went missing, which was just shortly after they had left the lodge. Investigators collected little evidence from the scene. Torn clothing, twine used to tie up the women, purses, a frozen limb with blood on it, bloody binoculars, and a camera. According to an August 1991 Chicago Tribune article titled Murder They Wrought, the pathologist did not immediately know if the women were raped, but Sheriff Ray Utzi was quoted as saying, I think we should be looking for a psychopath. I'd stake my reputation that these murders were committed by a parolee or an escapee from the mental institution. Chief of Illinois State Police William Morris was in charge of the investigation and believed that it was a gang of individuals as he believed it was too difficult for one man to overtake three women. Police began questioning employees at the lodge which led to even more mysterious facts about the growing case. The card sent to the women by their friend was placed in their room inbox by the desk clerk but the card eventually disappeared. The desk clerk believed one of the women had picked up the card. However, the women were killed the day before the postcard arrived. Suspects began to mount less than a week after, and with them came polygraph tests. According to the Chicago Tribune article from 1991, polygraph examiners gave tests to multiple people. A bakery driver who was seen near the crime scene and whose truck had similar twine in it used in the murders. A salesman who had seen the women talking to two men in a blue and white Chevy on Monday afternoon. A busboy, a bait shop operator who warned one of his employees not to talk to investigators. A stable hand who went missing from his home on Monday and then showed up on Wednesday after the bodies were found. And also a dishwasher who showed up the next day with scratches on his face he claimed were from a shaving accident. All of those suspects were tested and passed polygraph tests. There were other individuals being sought, such as the quote, physically powerful and vicious sexual degenerate who was recently let out on bond for burglary and had a stash hole in one of the caves in the park, about a half mile from where the bodies were found. The suspect was also seen driving a blue pickup on the day the women were murdered. A witness stated they saw a blue pickup speeding out of the park followed by a gray station wagon around 4 p.m. on the day of the murder. This matched what another witness reported. He said he had seen the women standing next to a gray Plymouth station wagon. A manhunt ensued, 
but it was two reporters who found the man, according to the 1991 Chicago Tribune article. They found that he would not have been able to commit the murder because he was miles away. The case began to run cold, but their evidence grew. Tests came back showing the women were not raped. They developed the camera roll and found that there were pictures apparently taken just moments before they were murdered. Scenes of them smiling and standing before the beautiful landscape. However, there was one that interested police the most. One of them showed what appeared to be the silhouette of their would-be killer. They also found that the twine used in the murder was a somewhat common type of twine for butchers and could be found in kitchens. However, the leads went cold after this. Money ran short on the investigation and the local police took over from the state and federal officials. Deputy William Dummett was on the outskirts of the investigation. He was tasked with investigating phone calls, anonymous letters, and witness statements while the state investigated the case. Once money ran out and the state found the case turning cold, Dummett became obsessed with the twine. He remembered the rape and robbery a year prior, which was close to the current crime scene. Most of all, he remembered the twine that was used to bind the couple. Dummett, along with his partner Wayne Hess, began investigating the twine even more. Dummett became an armchair scientist. He purchased a microscope and set it up on his kitchen table. He studied the twine for days, but only found that it had 20 strands. He found out that the twine in the kitchen had the same amount of strands. According to an article printed in Life magazine, Dummett, emboldened by the connection, tracked down the factory where the twine was produced in Kentucky. He took his sample and matched it with theirs. They were exactly the same. So Dummett made this connection. The strands used in the rape the strands used in the murder and the strands used in the kitchen were all the same. As well as what is produced from this one factory in Kentucky. While they continued dragging the net of lie detector tests, they began zeroing in on our suspect. Multiple employees tested mentioned a coworker who came in after the murders with scratches on his face. He went by the nickname Rocky. He went by the nickname Rocky because of his boxing while in the Marines. He had a wife and kids. He was a painter, but at the time of the murders, he was a dishwasher. They knew him from earlier in the state's investigation. He was questioned for two hours on March 17th, two hours on March 19th, and then tested again in April for nine and a half hours. He passed all three lie detector tests. However, the state took a piece of the dishwasher's clothing. He had a leather jacket that was stained with blood. He said he was a hunter and an outdoorsman. He said the blood was likely from hunting. The state tested the jacket and found that it was animal blood. They accepted the dishwasher's alibi that he was writing letters to friends when the murders occurred. Time passed, but the dishwasher was still at the top of the list. It was September 27, 1960, and they brought Chester Otto Weger, the dishwasher, the outdoorsman, the veteran, in for questioning. 
He came of his own free will. It was that night that lie detector examiner John Reed conducted the exam and asked direct questions like, did you tie those dead women's wrists with butcher twine? And did those dead women cause the scratches on your face? That, for the first time, Chester Weger failed the test. Dummett and Hess were elated. Finally, they have something on this guy. Dummett and Hess got the jacket previously tested from Weger and sent it to the FBI laboratory for testing. This time, the jacket came back positive with human blood. Human blood with the blood type that matched one of the victims. Finally, they had circumstantial evidence that linked Uyghur to the murders. Tests also confirmed the murder weapon was the tree limb as the splinters of wood from the tree limb matched the splinters found in the women's skulls. Dummett and Hess had enough circumstantial evidence to bring the state police back into the investigation. With this new evidence and the help of the state police, they watched Uyghur for weeks. Uyghur knew he was being followed. He would taunt the police. There would be times where he'd sneak out of his own house and they'd lose track of him, and then he would saunter back up to his house hours later. There was even an incident when officials were following him while he went hunting that he pointed his 22 rifle at the officials and smiled. The investigators interviewed him on and off throughout October 1960. They visited the rape victim from the previous year during this time and gave her a lineup of photos. She screamed at one photo and began crying. She tearfully yelled, that's him. It was the photo of Chester Otto Weger. After weeks of following him, the LaSalle County State's Attorney Harlan Warren ordered Weger's arrest on November 16, 1960. Dummett and Hess picked up Weger from his home at 5 p.m. and drove him to the State's Attorney's office. He was interrogated by Dummett, Hess, and the Sheriff. At 8 p.m., he was served nine warrants, three of them connecting him to the Starved Rock murders. The others were for unrelated crimes. After he was served with warrants, he was placed in lineups for multiple witnesses and victims of his other crimes. He was then questioned about the murders a second time that night. Dummett and Hess and the sheriff questioned Uyghur for hours, and Uyghur eventually asked to see his wife and father. The officials said they were on their way. Uyghur's mother, father, and wife arrived and are left alone to speak with Uyghur at 1 a.m. At around 2 a.m., Uyghur's family went home. Almost immediately, Uyghur confesses. His first words are, I did it. According to court documents, his confession contained what follows. On the morning of March 14th, Wigger, then a dishwasher at the Starved Rock Lodge, completed his usual morning tasks at the lodge at approximately 11 o'clock a.m. He wrote a letter to a friend and ate lunch around 11.30, then returned to work helping with the washing of the luncheon dishes and pots. He finished shortly before 3 and left the lodge soon thereafter. He walked down the trail to St. Louis Canyon, taking about 25 minutes. He first encountered the three women near a bridge at the entrance to the canyon. Thinking it was a purse, he grabbed at a strap hanging over the shoulder of one of the women, who was later identified as being Mrs. Edding, but it turned out to be a pair of binoculars. He began to run past the women back out of the canyon when Mrs. Murphy started hitting him with a camera or pair of binoculars. Mrs. Edding also began striking him with something sharp, and he seized her by the arms, saying that he meant them no harm. 
The women agreed to walk with Wager back into the canyon on condition that he would agree to let them go. When they reached the end of the canyon near a waterfall, he told them that he would have to tie them up. Mrs. Murphy again began hitting him and he grabbed her arm and told her that he was not going to harm them. He tied the women up with some pieces of string that he was carrying. As he was leaving, Mrs. Murphy broke free and began hitting him with her camera. He became angry and hysterical, picked up a club lying nearby and hit her in the head with it. He carried her to a cave near where the other women were sitting. Mrs. Edding, who had one arm free, began striking and scratching him, and he then hit her and Mrs. Linquist in the head with the club. He dragged their bodies into the cave because there was a red and white piper cub flying in the area, which he thought might be a police plane. He then went back to the lodge. It was after this confession, the next day, that Chester took police to the kill site. He showed them what happened, laid it out. He walked them through the entire crime scene, footstep by footstep, action by action. And then the day after, immediately recanted. He told them, I'm innocent. Thank you so much for listening. Come back at the end of the month when we go further into the trial, the incarceration, and the parole of Chester Otto Weger. And we delve deeper into a growing public that believed he was innocent. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening and leave us a rating as it really helps me out. And I would love to hear any comments you have. Until next time.